That is, or I'll send you to the Merv Griffin Show. <laughs> poor fools. Well, you know, speaking of poor fools, we're here tonight. You know, it's Saturday night. It's fall. You can feel the sap. Can't you, gang? Rising in the veins. <laughs> and as I looked down over this crowd, I could see that Saturday night, which is a very special night in America, Saturday night is that night of excitement when millions of guys have got millions of dates out with them. And there's something in their mind that says, is this the night? <laughs> well, looking down over this crowd, I can say to many of you, no. <laughs> I can, yeah, because you can see both sides of the equation here, you know. You see a guy sitting there with his teeth shining, you know. He's all excited. He's wearing his Robert Hall coat, you know. He's going all out, you know. His Pontiac is all shined for this night. He's been dating her now for six solid weeks. But it's Saturday night. He's all excited. And I can see the other side of the equation. That look in the eye that says, oh. If I have to date just once more a, an idiot named Clarence, why am I? Why is this? And so you see all through, all through American literature, the battle of the sexes. It is constantly being joined. Every play, without, almost without exception, American plays, is about this guy and this chick. Now sometimes it's not quite that way, if you know something about current contemporary American playwrights. <laughs> But they're trying. It's not easy, you know, when you wear elf shoes. <laughs> but they pretend, you know. And everywhere you look, you know, everywhere you look, you, you see this. Like, how many of you have seen that great commercial? I mean, you know, last week we celebrated here on, this, on, on our show, we celebrated a week which is, by the way, over in just about an hour and a half. We just have a little more time left to celebrate it, in case you missed it. We're just ending American Oral Hygiene Week. How did you celebrate? You do a little extra spitting during the week? You know? And I thought to myself last week, I said, you know, that's a fantastically American holiday. Only an American would think of making a week-long holiday devoted to mouthwash. Well, it takes an American mind because we're very worried about that kind of thing. Have you seen that great commercial, which I think eventually, maybe a hundred years from now, they'll be playing it in museums to tell about American life in the mid-60s. It shows this girl, see? She's a beautiful chick. Oh, fantastic. I mean, she makes, you know, she makes Playboy look like the Brownie Girl Scout manual. You know, there she is, see? At the opening scene, there's a worried look on her face. And she's talking to this nice sort of elderly lady, you know, the kind with the dyed blue hair. Every hair is in place. And she's wearing this pair of, of Sears Roebuck dentures. And she's looking at the girl. She says, what's the matter, Phoebe? You look worried. And Phoebe says, yes, house mother. Have you noticed she's asking advice from a house mother? Now, part of the American mythology, have you noticed, no teenager in any commercial 
asks advice from anybody older than a teenager. You notice that? In fact, there are 45-year-old guys. <laughs> They're standing in the job. <laughs> They're looking worried, and this 12-year-old girl comes up and says, Daddy, have you tried my grid? <laughs> Daddy says, no. And she says, look, Daddy, it has foaming action. He says, oh. <laughs> 45 years old, he never even heard of phenomit. <laughs> But his kids know all about it, see? And, and the mother, on the other hand, the one function that the mother plays in TV commercials is to tell the old man that he's a slob. <laughs> Touched his little belly button, didn't he? <laughs> That score, that went home, you know. I, I could just see that harpoon, bang. <laughs> well, well, actually, though, the mother is always seen, she's never really shown as a mother, she's always known as a homemaker. <laughs> the word housewife is gone, she's a homemaker, and often we don't even see her. Typical example, here's a husband. He's standing in the middle of the linoleum. He's gone like this. <laughs> Then all of a sudden you hear, Charles, are you using that idiotic, silly green cleanser again? She says, here, try the new Ajax. Oh, gee, it works. <laughs> don't be, don't let me catch you using green cleanser anymore. Goodbye. And off she goes to the track. Well, there, there you have, there you have the only place that mothers are seen. But the one thing you've got to remember about teenagers is that they give advice in all TV commercials, on all given subjects. And now, if you have a teenager that takes advice, she has to take it from a neutral source, somebody called amorphously the house mother. Did you see that commercial? And she says, I'm worried. I have a date with Jimmy. And, well, he acts like I've got, gee, something bad breath. <laughs> Jimmy acts like she's got bad breath. <laughs> Jimmy's have changed since my day. <laughs> Listen, I can remember wading through pools of sweat. <laughs> Bad breath never stopped me. <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very aesthetic crowd now, apparently, you know. So she says, I'm worried about bad breath. And so the house mother says, why, here, Phoebe, have you tried... Colgate's 101, or is it Colgate's 100? And Phoebe says, gee, that looks good. It's red, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and the house mother says, yes, right. Well, the next scene is fantastic. You see a shot of the outside of the building, and there is Phoebe, and with her is Jimmy. 
Well, obviously, bad Brett ain't stopping Jimmy tonight. He's got a hold of the back of her neck, see? He's like this, see? I see her foot go up, you know? By the way, have you noticed that in all Doris Day movies, whenever Doris Day kisses somebody, her foot goes... I never once had a girl do that, you know? I bet a lot of girls have tried it, you know, and they get a cramp all the time. But you know, this problem, though, you got to face these problems. And here they are out there, and this girl, this, you know, Jimmy, you see the darkness down, the music is going, and then it fades out. And there's a brief change of scene, and now Phoebe comes into the house, and there's the house mother waiting up for her, wearing her bathrobe. And Phoebe says, oh, thank you. Now you won't have to worry, thanks to Colgate 100. And I thought to myself, I've heard of mouthwash being used for a lot of things. Well, you know, I, I, these commercials... <laughs> There's all kinds of little ins and outs of these. They're very subtle, a lot of these commercials. For example, there is one commercial that shows this guy. Have you seen the guy with the hammer? And he walks around and he bangs around on the side of his car. You notice that one? He bangs the front of the car, bangs the side of the car, bangs the other side, stands there and looks. Then he walks off screen. And then the voice says, yes, this new car has bumpers that go all the way. He's been banging on the door. <laughs> now, I don't know whether he's got a rubber hammer or whether that door is made out of sheet steel. I doubt it. Because as I watched this commercial the other day, sitting there watching, see, I thought to myself, well, you know, so many of these commercials play on the deep-seated desires that we all have. I wonder how many guys have always felt an urge to kill your car. <laughs> I mean, really kill it, you know? Oh, yeah, you know, I, I, there, was, there was one the other day, it shows 17. If you notice, commercials are getting to be very musical comedy-oriented. All of a sudden, you, you know, the screen goes black and on comes the commercial. And it goes, there's no business like show business. Eighteen guys come flying out, see? They don't touch the ground at all. <laughs> you know, they come flying out, and they all of a sudden you are aware that they're in the Rheingold Brewery. <laughs> and they're all going like this, you know. And they all, they all go, you know, they're all tall, skinny guys with curly shoes. <laughs> And you wonder, what's happening at the brewery? <laughs> what do they do there nights? <laughs> oh, yeah, I keep watching these little dramas, you know, thinking, gee, you know, how does it apply to my life? Well, this afternoon, you know, once in a while you see something that actually applies to real life. Now, today, I'm watching a football game. Now, I think in football you see the real American ethos. How many of you noticed that all TV football productions now go like this? You see a quick shot 
of seven guys lining up the line of scrimmage. Lining up helmets, the whole bit. Then you hear Kurt Gowdy or somebody named Jim. They always say the Big Blue is lining up now in a 3-4-7-9-6-SJ-7 formation. Just with a bunch of guys there waiting to hit another bunch, you know. Then he says, all right, there's the call, there's the snap from center, and then boom, you hear this crunch of bones. Plastic meeting plastic. You hear muffled obscenities. You know, it's American youth testing themselves. You know, not one of them on the, on the diamond on the field down there is less than six feet nine, 280 pounds. They hit, boom. Then there's a quick shot, as soon as the referee blows the whistle, of a girl. You notice that? There's always a girl in the stands going... <laughs> Between every play, they take a shot of this blonde girl. Now, if a guy was to come down from Mars, he would assume that there are 11 men playing another group of 11 men before 70,000 blondes <laughs> with their mouths open. Well, I'm watching this scene. I says, well, maybe that's the way life is seen in America. Must be some reason for it. There's never any picture of a typical football fan sitting there, you know, with a blanket up around his neck, 216 pounds, five feet two, <laughs> you know, covered with warts, and he's drinking this big bottle of gold granddad. <laughs> Somehow, every time I go to a football game, there are seven of these guys on either side of me. And they keep falling asleep on my shoulder. Once the while, one throws up on my foot, you know. You know. Oh, yeah, you don't see that when you actually watch it on TV. Like the other day, I go to a professional football game, see. Now, professional football is always shown as either Fran Tarkington versus the bad guys or Joe Namath versus the bad guys. And all those other guys that keep hitting each other, number 47 and number 89, they're just out there to provide a backdrop for Joe or for Fran. Actually, if the game was really played the way TV fans would like it, it would be Joe versus Fran. The other guys would stay out of the way. And so I'm out there watching this game, see, and there's the quarterback. And around me are some typical professional football fans. Three sheets to the wind. And all through the entire game, these guys keep hollering at each other and they keep passing $10 bills back and forth. You know, I'm sitting there and the, the bills are going, guy says, here, pass the 20 on, 20 on. It's three points on Green Bay. Pass them. I said, what is this about? You know, fellas, Joe is down there dying for the Jets. Guy says, give me my dough. Give me the dough. And I said, gee, I never saw that on television. It's another side of football. Well, today, I watch in the halftime. That's another side you never see in any of the football broadcasts. What goes on in the band? Now, wait a minute. This, to most people, this is that, that, that interim where Kurt comes on and gives you the scores around the nation. No, no. Out there on the field, there are 120 people, all marching in unison with 70,000 other people watching them. With the, by the way, if you notice now, 
that almost all bands really are attenuated chorus lines. I mean, they all come out, the whole bit is like this. <laughs> their pants rolled up, you know. You wonder, you know, where they got their training. And so I watched this band today, watching it carefully, see, because I'm an old band member. And I saw a moment, just a brief instant, and I could hear the announcer saying, and now the Big Red Band will do its famous salute to Richard Rogers. Eee. That's feedback. <laughs> and then down there they start playing Oklahoma or something, and the band, you know, they, they dolly in. And I see this trombone player sweating a little bit. Next to him is this guy playing a sousaphone, and he's blowing away. I see five people with clarinets, and I'm watching this. It suddenly hit me why I was vaguely uncomfortable. One of the worst things that ever happened to me in my whole life happened to me as the member of a marching band. Now, you know, you just you see these bands and they look so clean and they look so anonymous. That is composed of 100 warring factions out there and about five girl cheerleaders. I'm a member of the band, see? And I'm playing the sousaphone. Now, if you don't, if you, do you know what a sousaphone is? Most people call it a tuba. Sousaphone is the big horn that goes up over the shoulders. That's a sousaphone. The tuba, by the way, is another instrument that is held upright, like this. I'm a sousaphone player. And even today, if you'll notice, look carefully. My left shoulder droops. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I've got a big groove here yet, you know. Oh, oh there's so, much, so many exciting things about music. I will never forget tacking into a three-quarter wind, going into the second course of Semper Fidelis. That quartering wind as it hits into that big bell of that tuba and that sousaphone. Are you aware that a sousaphone plays you back? <laughs> I'm not kidding, that baby's catching the wind, you know, and you're blowing into it, it's blown back. Well, when you start getting into one of these real, like, like Semper Fidelis, this thing is blowing as much as you're blowing. And there's a high, thin note that comes out of the ears. Oh, yeah, you, you lean into it, you know. And as you march down the field, there's a constant tinkle, constant ringing sound of various wits in the auditorium or in the crowd throwing things into your belt. <laughs> you don't see that, do you, gang? Oh, I'll tell you, some nights I'd open up the bottom, you know, they had this valve at the bottom, and stuff would come out that I didn't even know at that time what it was. <laughs> and you ought to try playing on the mall with that hanging on you. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's terrible, you know. And after, uh, sometimes, you know, when you first join the band, you're always given the oldest sousaphone. Well, I had a sousaphone that was like 400 years old, and deep down in its bowels. Yeah, they're, they're living things, these things, you know. There was an old swamp. I mean, millions of sousaphone players had played it before me, see. And it was funny, every once in a while I'd hold, I'd be, I'd be standing at attention, see. The sousaphone there, that great big German silver bell in front of me. And we'd be waiting to march. We're not playing. All of a sudden, my sousaphone would go, 
my face. And you know, some, some long forgotten breakfast of some band member of a, of a previous generation. It's amazing, you know, salami, smoked fish, the whole bit. So, you know, this is the nitty-gritty side of music. Well, I'll tell you, you know, and, and after, after a couple of seasons of playing in a marching band, you know, you get, very, you get very cocky. Now, perhaps you're not aware that in every marching band, there is a very distinct series of social gradations. For example, the absolute epitome of a marching band, the top social level, are the trumpet players. They never talk to anybody below their level. We used to see the trumpet players up there ahead of us. I mean, they played the melody. I remember they used to start, you know, see, that's what sets the social level. And you'd hear the melody being played. That's the trumpet players. What were we playing? Womp, um, um, um. Um, um, um. I can remember kids saying to me, Hey, Chef, boy, you guys really play on the mall. Why don't you play it for me? And I'd go, Um, 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 Guys would say, Well, play it. I said, What the hell do you think I'm doing? I'm playing it. That's all we ever heard was that side of it. Now, directly behind the trumpet section comes the next the next group in social relative position, the trombone players. I mean, that's why Meredith Wilson wrote about the trombones, because they're very important in a marching band. So the trombone players, as these guys are going, the trombone players go, wah, 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 wah. And we'd be bugged. All we could do is go, oomp, oomp all the way up ahead of us there. And right behind those guys are the clarinet players. Now, the clarinet players always played the obligato. And so when the, when the, when the trumpets are going, these guys are going, that's respectable. It sounds lousy, but it's respectable. All right, right behind these guys, right behind the clarinet players comes, and I must say that the tuba players and the sousaphone players are not the last in line. There was a little thin band of little short, fat, wide-hipped girls. They are, they are the, the peck horn players, the French horn players. And they were only there because our principal had played a French horn when he was in school. And he refused to allow a band on the field unless it had them. And so these little short, fat girls, quack, 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 quack. Nobody talked to them at all. In fact, we never even gave them music. The French horn, as an instrument, is an obscenity. Makes obscene sounds. <laughs> And I want to tell you, some of my greatest musical moments have been when I've seen a French horn get out of control. <laughs> they really do, you know. 
Well, we were always way in the end. We were the last guys, the, the, the sousaphone section, eight of us. Eight guys, me, Schwartz, Dunker, Elmer Dunker, Bruner, and there was Ralph Rose. He had great big ears. And by the way, he matched his sousaphone. All of us would be standing back there with our great big con sousaphones on our shoulders. And there was a certain solidarity. You know, there's a solidarity that comes with people who have never, ever in their lives played the melody. Now, this happens even in big industrial organizations. I mean, you know, guys who see the entire organization through the mail room. I mean, that's the way it was as a sousaphone player. We'd see them marching up there. And we always provided, in a sense, the exclamation point on the marching formations. And so every day we'd practice. Every day we'd rehearse. And we'd be out there wearing our raincoats. The rain is coming down. And out in front of us would be Mr. Dirks. And that, that, that insane drum major we had, Wilbur Duckworth. <laughs> yeah, we had this drum major, seven feet tall. And a great big shako. And he had a wasp waist, you know, nine-inch waist. And he'd spin 19 batons at once. <laughs> Maniacal. And he'd look down at us, you know, with absolute total disdain. And so every day we would practice our maneuvers. Like making a big block H. We'd march down with the H. And I would always be on the cross part of the H. I'd see the other lines, you know, going up and down. And I knew all these formations by heart. Well, every week, we would practice a special formation for this week's big game. And it was kept a secret. I mean, we're not supposed to let anybody know, because if George Rogers Clark's band ever finds out that we're going to make a big umbrella with water squirting out of the top of it, no telling what they do to top us. So it was very secret, see. And it was always held on Monday. So every Monday I'm at rehearsal. I make sure. Monday comes and goes one week. You know, we do the block H. We make a G for George Rogers Clark. We make our big drum. We, our, our big specialty was a drum we would make. And it would revolve. And half of the band would be the big drumstick. Hitting it. You know, just looking like a big mob walking down the field, but we thought it was great. Well, came the big game, you know, and I, Monday goes by. And so Friday night, just before the game, Shepard is walking towards the drum major field where we practice. We had a special field for the band. I'm walking down, got my sousaphone. I this is just nothing. What do you say, Dunker? What do you say we go to the Red Rooster? Let's goof off practice. What the heck? I mean, we've got it down pat. And Dunker says, yeah. Let's go. Have you ever seen two guys sitting in a booth wearing a sousaphone? <laughs> eating cheeseburgers? <laughs> goofing off? <laughs> Well, me and Dunker are sitting there. It's Friday afternoon. The big game is about three hours away, see? And we're eating cheeseburgers. We're sitting there. 
And we can hear in the distance the band going, ta 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 And Dunker says, listen to them suckers. I say, yeah, well, what the heck, you know, after all, the kids in the band have to practice. We've been in the band, you know, two years now. Dunker says, well, that's what comes of being a veteran. And that night, as we lined up to march in halftime, I learned one of the great lessons of all my life. There were 15,000 people. I'm standing with my sousaphone. The whistle blows. Duckworth says, forward! I was marching into disaster. That concludes tonight's salute to peace. Oh, boy. All right, follow me. Follow me. Let's go down to the city hall and burn it down. Let's go. I mean, Lindsay's not working this weekend. Let's go. <laughs> A terrible bunch. You see how easy you're led? <laughs> kind of fun, isn't it? Oh, yeah, you know, you know, when, when, when hate is allowed to run untrammeled, it, it, brings, it brings the roses to the cheeks. In fact, I'm going to have to finish this story because this story represented to me one of the great moments of education in my life. And in fact, when you watch TV next week and you see those band members down there marching, and Kirk Gowdy never mentions them. You know, they march all by themselves. Down there, 70,000 people get up and go to the John. You know, or they go and they go for the hot dogs. These guys have worked like Trojans to create that majestically choreographed spectacle. Well, here I am, see? Me and Dunker are sitting in the Red Rooster. We got our sousaphones at ready. We're wearing our band suits. And by the way, our band suits were magnificent. We had these great big red hats that rose up with a great big shaving brush. I don't know what the significance of that shaving brush is, but they always have them, you know. Big shaving brush. We had great big gold cords all over, big gold frogs around the front, real tight pants with purple stripes, white, blue, and we'd march like we would march like a well-oiled machine. Now, the thing to remember is that our band had for the last three years won national marching band honors. We were a crack band. You know, the kind that gets invited to go all the way to the county seat. <laughs> you know, for the demolition derby. I mean, we were that kind of band. We were always getting invited to play at these big places. And so here it is, the big game of the year. It's Friday night. There's 20,000 people out there. And the band is lining up in the end zone. The last play of the first half has just concluded, and now the lights are on. And the announcer says, And now, one of the top marching bands of the United States will give its special 
surprise performance tonight, and it is a performance which I'm sure that all of you will enjoy. Now, let the show begin. A surprise performance? <laughs> and sitting next to me, Dunker rattles the bell of his sousaphone a little bit. <laughs> And there, the band is lined up out in front of us, 105 strong. And I can see those trombones held at ready. Those trumpets held out at attention. And in front of us is Wilbur Duckworth. That waist, that wasp waist, he was three times national drum major twirling champion. And a total maniac. He had a, you know, he had a back that bent in like this, you know. His feet were always way up over his head. I mean, the angry kind. He had two little BBs for eyes. And Wilbur Duckworth is standing out in front of the band. He's got his baton. He's got the whistle. He goes, Bap! The drums start going. We march out. I'm cool so far. We had this beat that went, bum, 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 bum. Do you hear it? And we're marching away. See? Now we're out at the middle of the field. Duckworth raises his baton. He goes... That is the signal for the block H. And we go into this block H like machines. Beautiful. You can hear the crowd, the great roar of approval. And Duckworth is out there with the baton. Then he throws it up. And we're blowing our guts out. It's showbiz. Thousands of people are applauding. And then we finish the last notes of the Block H. And with that, Duckworth takes his baton and goes, Well, yo, you know, when you hit the corner with a, with a sousaphone, you got to play it. 120 pounds of metal, you know, you start tacking into it. You know, we're marching away, and then we get right out in the middle of the field. Right dead field. The lights. Suddenly, Duckworth halts the band. He goes, I can hear the slight rattle of trombone against trombone. The school is waiting to see what we're going to do. 20,000 people are out there watching. I am about to have one of the worst moments of my whole life. Little did I realize. I'm standing back there comforted by the fact that there are 105 guys around me. All of us waiting at attention. Duckworth goes. Red. Seven. Yellow. Thirty-two. What the hell is that? 
I can't even tell you what Duckworth, that look in the face here, that angry look, you know, that look of let's really say it tonight, man. And next to me, I hear, I hear Dunker say something into the bell of a sousaphone. I mean, it's the first time I've ever heard that word amplified by 120. It just came out, oop. And he said it in fear. He goes, yellow, 32, red, 19. Woo! 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 And they start marching. I see guys going in all directions. And all of a sudden, I find myself all by myself. I am marching down the sidelines towards the 20-yard line. And I look back, and I see... I see Dunker is angling off towards the water bucket. And I see the rest of the band is going through stuff, swinging around, and they're forming names and numbers. I keep running around back and forth. And I see Duckworth. I see our drum major. He is out there with the sting. And he sees me moving off at an angle. And with that, I've never seen a man with such magnificent self-control. A man who could create out of disaster, triumph. He's standing there, and he sees me, and I'm staggering off. Back and forth, see. With that, Duckworth takes his baton, and he goes, points at me. He goes, with that, the entire band moves over to me. A duck were, uh, it was, they, had, they had been rehearsing this mysterious formation. Yellow, 32, red, 19, three shorts, one long, two quick shorts. When Dunker and I had been eating cheeseburgers and we were caught off base. Well, the band is marching in a clump around me and I'm sick. Oh my God, what am I going to do? And they're playing a tune I never heard. And they go pom 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 pom, and I'm just going oh 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 Telling you, when you're ad living on a sousaphone, that's a big ad lib. They can hear it all the way in the next county, you know. Oh oh, and I can see off in the distance. I can see poor old Dunker. He's trying to. He's caught in the trombone section. There's a quick whistle, and they go into a counter-march. Well, now, have you ever seen a counter-march? That's when the band marches back on itself. Well, all of a sudden, I turned, and I saw a wave of clarinet players coming directly at me. My sousaphone had gotten the better of me now. With this 115 pounds, it moved me forward by specific gravity and centrifugal force. I ran over three clarinet players, just trampled them underfoot, and I could hear them squeaking, you know. Nothing worse than a clarinet player with his clarinet sticking out of his ear, you know. And I go, guys, I'm sorry, fellas, I can't stop. And the whole crowd is going ape. 
millions of guys are cheering in the band. You know, the stands are, wow, they love this. You know, the sousaphone player is going out of his mind down there. And they're standing up more and more. Well, with that, the guy on the PA system says, and that concludes the special performance by the Hammond High Band of its new special formation, Comedy Relief by Ernie Dunker and Gene Shepard. Let's give him a big hand. Hey! Oh. Comedy Relief. Duck. I think it was her girdle. Duckworth had ad-libbed it. He had made it seem as if it was comedy relief. And I can remember the band is now marching in its straight formation. We are marching back off the field. And the drums are going... We're leaving. And next to me is Ernie Dunker. Ernie Dunker has shrunk. Have you ever seen a person who has been so humiliated, he has become tiny. His teeth are sunken in. I said, what's the matter, Dunker? He said, what's the matter with you? I said, stand up, Dunker, we're comedy relief. He says, yeah. And five minutes later, we're sitting in the, in the stands. Me and Dunker, our sousaphones held aloft. And up comes Duckworth, six feet nine, got a shako on. He's got this big baton. I'm sitting there. And down on the field, the football game is being played. I'm sitting in my sousaphone, shrinking low. Duckworth comes up and he goes, boing! I don't know whether you've ever gotten a four-pound German silver mouthpiece in your molars. Then he hits Dunkers, boing! <laughs> we're sitting there. He's all right, you guys. We're going to do it in the National. If you guys can remember what the hell you did. <laughs> we'll win this thing going away. He goes, boing, boing! I mean, he's a real autocrat, you know, a genuine drum major. And I turned to Dunker, and I said, Dunker, what did you do? He says, I stepped on a trombone's neck. <laughs> he says, how about you? And I says, well, you notice that there are three clarinet players lying under the bench out there? They had wooden clarinets. <laughs> now, there were a lot of terrible things said about clarinets. <laughs> and, and, and we both sat there for a minute thinking this out. Dunker finally says, Shemp, do you think he was putting us on? I said, why, no. You know, my man's mind always wants to accept the best. I says, why, no. We were a big hit. 
and about three people in the stands, you know, sitting around the banner hollering, Hey, you guys, you were great. I like the thing where you fell down the bell hitting you in the mouth. It was great. There's <laughs> nothing to it. <laughs> it's a great band, you know. <laughs> we're sitting there. Well, that night, the head of the band, Mr. Dirks, he takes me and Dunker aside. He says, all right, Shepard, Dunker, the basis of any good band are the sousaphone players. <laughs> you know, he was a great psychologist. He says, what is a band without sousaphone players? It's a bunch of guys walking around with trumpets. Bunch of drummers, bunch of clarinetists. But a band with sousaphone players, that's a band. Now, don't ever miss practice again. <laughs> well, you know, the trouble with men is that they never know when they're ahead. Dunker says to Mr. Dirks, we didn't miss practice. I said, what the hell are you trying to do, Dunker? Dunker says, we didn't miss practice. We rehearsed that. <laughs> now, do you notice what he's doing? By now, Dunker is believing that we were a smash and that we worked it out. And with that, Mr. Dirk says, well, it was very good. I hope you do it next week just the same way. And out he goes. And Dunker says to me, is he putting us on? I said, I don't know. Well, the next week, I don't even have to tell you what happened. The next week, Duckworth, 32, 17, woo, 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 18 red, woo, woo. And I turned and I ran red head on into Ernie Dunker. And by the time we got untangled, the halftime was over. That was the end of our comedy bit. And so now every week when I look down there, you know, and I see those marching bands, I think to myself, I just wonder how many people watching the marching band know the peculiar esprit de corps are you aware that among marching band members, there is one band that stands above all the others? You want a piece of esoterica? That among all marching band members, Mr. Dirks used to say to us about every two weeks, he would run a film. And you've all seen films of Weeb Eubank showing Joe Namath what they did wrong against Miami last week. You know those films? Well, are you aware that the bands take films of themselves? They're terrible. I mean, it's terrible to see yourself in a marching band out of step. I mean, it really is an awful sight. I mean, it makes you sick. And Mr. Dirks would turn on this thing every two weeks, and he'd say, now I'm going to show you a band. And on it would come. And you'd see it's flickering film. And Mr. Dirks would stand there next to that screen with tears coming down his eyes. You know, like, like Newt Rockney. And you'd see that flickering screen. 
And on that screen, you'd see 100 men in this little tight body of anger, a real marching band. And you'd see them moving in precise movements down there. And Mr. Dirks would cry. He'd say, man, you're looking at the all-time great marching band. I want silence in this room. We'd watch. He'd say, if this marching band ever comes within five miles of being as good as this band, I will leave this mortal coil a happy man. And then he would stop the film, and he has a pointer, and he would say, there I am. <laughs> At the age of 19, our band director, there he is in the peck horn section. He'd point, he'd say, watch this pivot. Start the film. And he would, boom. And we'd all sit there and watch. And you know the name of that band? Among all band members, it's the greatest band of all. It's the University of Michigan Marching Band. This is the New York Yankees of bands. And we used to watch that band curse the day that we were going to Hammond High. In fact, I'll, you know, you want to hear another band story? All right, how about a New Jersey story? That shows how low man has sunk. Another New Jersey. Speaking of New Jersey and the, and the sinking state of man's culture, that reminds me, what, what radio station is this? And what fun city are we in? Well, let's see. It's now just uh, two minutes to 11.30. Just three minutes ago, the sanitation department started to clear this block. Look, that Jaguar the last time. Have the Bentley on me. He said, okay, you get out and make sure that I get the grill right in the middle. <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw a, a great, a great sight. I tell you, it makes, it makes you have faith in America. I'm walking along 57th Street the other day. Now, this actually happened. I'm walking along 57th Street, and I see a crowd over there. It's around, uh, oh, it's around 6th Avenue. And I see a big crowd, and I stop, and there at the curb is a magnificent Rolls Royce. I mean, you know the kind of Rolls Royce with the folding top, and it's got this biscuit-colored upholstery, and it's two-toned, silver, gold, and there it is. And it's got one of these low license numbers. By the way, how many of you have a secret urge to have a low license number? No. I can see why. <laughs> I mean, a low license number, the kind that simply says L. Boy, I mean, that's a, you know, that's really saying it to the world, you know. Just says B. Well, my old man used to look out of his car, see. He was a great connoisseur of license numbers. We'd drive along and he'd say, hey, kids, look at that Illinois plate ahead of us. It's only got three numbers, 742. Boy, there's a big shot. Should we drive past and look at them? We drive past and look in. <laughs> Here's this guy driving along. And the old man always had this, this two-edged thing. 
about low license numbers. He always believed that he would like to have one, you know, have his initials on it. Or the other side, he was terribly afraid that if he got a low license number, they could spot him. Yeah, you know, if you got a license number that says L on it, oh man, you don't run away. I mean, I like that license number that says LD6SJ7, square root of 3, <laughs> over pi minus 4, times the cube root of 738, D. You know, I've often wondered how a guy could ever remember a typical New York license plate after he's been run over. You know, bang, you get hit. And here's that plate that long, you know. They pick you up and say, well, it was an orange one. <laughs> Had a lot of black numbers on it. <laughs> well, you know, these, these things, though, oh, now wait a minute. Now, these, these things of status are very important to us. And in fact, I think, I think that bands are status symbols. I think that good mouthwashes are. Oh, yeah, I, I think that anybody who's going to be caught the next two years with that old green cleanser, going to be beyond the pale. Have you seen that new cigarette? 101. One millimeter. One millimeter longer than the 100 millimeter cigarettes. Isn't that fun? Doesn't that make it better, gang? Well, I say eventually they will have cigarettes that start here and end in Trenton. Well, that's part of our rationalization process. You know, a lot of guys have been told by their doctors to cut down to one a day. <laughs> now, if you're going to have one that you can suck on for 24 hours, <laughs> have you seen that one commercial? They say, what are you going to do with all the time you can save by smoking long cigarettes? You know, you don't have to take all that time off, you know, lighten one off to the other one, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I've said that as, as, the, as the medical information about cigarettes gets more conclusive, cigarette smoking will get more maniacal. And so eventually, I think you can buy a pack of cigarettes that has two of them in, and they will last for six months each. 24-hour-a-day puffing. Now, that's part of the status world. Somehow, if, I mean, you feel grubby if you've got a short cigarette. Now all cigars are long. And I think that one of the reasons why guys have always enjoyed, secretly, the idea of uniforms is because they denote specific status. You know, one of the saddest sights, uh, when, you, when you leave here tonight, walk around the village, and you'll see all kinds of 18-year-old kids dressed in Boer War uniforms. Yeah, have you seen them, you know, with the things all over the side? You know, guys, some guys have got that much fruit salad. And he's 12. You know, I took a look at one guy, and he was about 18 years old, and he's floating down McDougal Street. You know. And I looked at his fruit salad. I had the Battle of Tobruk. Had El Alamein. He had seven major battles in the Pacific. And he had the patch of a... He had the patch of a division that I know specifically a lot of things about. And on this side, he had a little thing that says peace. <laughs> now, 
He was also he was also wearing a pair of fatigue pants, you know, and he had them dyed Charisse. You know, he's floating along down the street there. And his little canteen is at this little bottom, you know. And he goes along there, you know, and, and what got me was that he had these little he had these little patches on the top, you know, the cloth insignia. He was a lieutenant colonel. Well, you know, being an old ex-GI, it was kind of dark, see. And this guy comes floating along. He reminded me of a couple of lieutenant colonels I had known, but... He... He's floating along, you know, and without thinking, I whip him a salute, you know? And his eyelashes fluttered. It was a very embarrassing moment, you know? I hate to hit an officer. It was a terrible scene there, see? Well, I, well, you know, this, this problem, I'll never forget. You know, I'll tell you a real scene, though, from that division that this kid was wearing the patch of. I wonder how many of these kids that are walking around, you know, with the, with the old GI suits, the old shirts and all that, know anything about the patches they wear. You know, they think they're cute. You know, one's got an eagle. You know, one's got a great big bird on it. Another one's got a clover leaf, you know. And I guess they think those are Zen talismans. Well, let me tell you what happened one night. I look at this kid, see, and he's wearing big high boots. Now, I will tell you one thing. The boots that he was wearing were different from the boots that were originally worn with this uniform. His toes curled up. And there was a bell on the end of each one, see? It wasn't exactly a jump boot. It was more of a fly boot. However, this kid, you know, he's coming along there, see? And I walk about 20 feet further, and it suddenly hit me. Holy smokes, that, that insignia, that division. That division. And I go into... I go into a coffee shop, and I sit down, and I get myself a cup of coffee. See, and I'm sitting there, I says, where did I see that patch before? Where? Isn't he a bad ad-libber? <laughs> That's Jersey. <laughs> oh, boy. Candy kiss wit. And I'm sitting there, seeing. I think to myself, where have I seen that patch before? It was a very distinctive patch. I hadn't seen it for a long time. And then it hit me. I had seen it one morning. Well, actually, it was late at night. It was about 3.30 a.m., to be technically correct. And I am in a casual company. Now, do you know anything about a casual company? I, I suspect that Dante, who wrote his Inferno, Dante, who put this whole concept of hell down on paper, was a guy that spent three years in a casual company. <laughs> oh, no, my idea of hell is an eternal casual company where they're constantly calling roll, and you have no place in it. Now, for those of you who don't know what a casual company is, a casual company is a company composed of a lot of guys. You know, when you walk along the street, you know, and you're sweeping up junk, well, if you put it all in a little pile... All the junk that has no home, that's a casual company. Oh, yeah, you know, it, it happens ca gradually. For example, if you spent, say, six months in the stockade and your company has been shipped 
to, uh, let's say, the Philippines. There you are. You're in the slab. What do they do to you? Do they send you to the Philippines? No. They send you to the 2119 casual company. Signal. And you sit down. You know, you wait. Next to you is a guy that's been AWOL for six months. They dragged him back by the scuff of his neck. They thrown him in the barracks. He's now in your company. Here's a guy that was arrested for fist fighting 17 Marines simultaneously. And winning. That's what really gets you in trouble. Oh, yeah, you know, we, we like to think... I, I was never so disillusioned as one day... I, I am, I'm in the Army about eight weeks, and there are about five of us go in, and two of the guys were cadre. And we go into town. Now, I'd, I'd seen many movies, you know, about going into town. I'd never actually done it. And now I'm in town for the first time. It's this crummy little southern town that's laying like a kind of, a kind of like human abscess. It's laying there in these pine barrens. This little town. And we arrive about 6 o'clock at night. And we walk into a bar. Here we are. We're Signal Corps. I mean, half of the guys in the Signal Corps crowd with me had thick glasses. You know, they were typewriter repairmen. I mean, one guy was a telephone repair lineman, installator, that kind of thing. And it was a little skinny guy at the end who came with us who repaired teletype equipment. He's sitting down here. we are. Five dynamic soldiers. Well, in comes two Marines. I mean, they're really hairy, you know. You know that raunchy kind of Marine that's got a haircut that goes up and all the way down? You know the kind that's got little stubble, that's all, you know. These guys get their hats down here, you know, over their eyes. These two guys walk in. They sit down at the bar. And there we are, you know. <laughs> Five of us sitting. <laughs> well, the Marine on this end looks down the bar, and he looks at one of the guys in the crowd, and he says, to wit, who are you looking at, soldier? <laughs> Nothing. No answer. He says, I said, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you, and I'm a guy Reen. Answer. Who are you looking at? With that, the little skinny guy who repairs teletypes at the end says, I'm looking at you. <laughs> well, the four of us, you know, go down into the stools instantly. You know, we're sitting there drinking Ovaltine. You know, these guy reads, you know, they're drinking, they're drinking white lightning, two glasses at lunch, and <laughs> squirting out of their eyes. This, this Marine down at the end then says, oh, you are, are you? He comes down like this, you know, and these guys have got everything polished on him, you know, the whole bit, this head is polished. He's, you know, he's blitzed his eyes. With a, you know, that's a GI joke. <laughs> So he walks down there, and he, he looks at the five of us. We're sitting like this. 
He walks along and he hits each one of us on the back of the head. You know, knocks your hat off. He gets to the end. He hits this guy who was the teletype repairman. The next time you look at me, say, sir, soldier, bang. The kid gets up and says, what was that? The guy reads says, are you talking to me? With that, the kid goes, boom. <laughs> the Marine goes, boop. I'll tell you, his head hit the floor so quick. With that, the guy went, boom. He caught him on the back of the neck. Well, the other guy, Reen, came charging in. And just as he left his feet, this guy moved a little to the left, a little to the right, and caught him with his ankle. Right in the Adam's apple as he went by. Well, the two of them are laying on the floor. With that, Gasser. Gasser turns to the teletype repairman and says, Now look what you've done. Wait till they wake up. And he says, that won't be before 11 o'clock. He says, they're out for the night. The five of us sat there. Finally, Zinsmeister says, well, that'll teach them. <laughs> Mess around with a signal corps. Now, you think I'm making it up? This is the truth. See? These two guys are laying there, and the bartender, the bartender says, look, I'll set them up all around. Them guys have been coming in every Friday at cleaning house. He said, no, thanks. Any trouble, just call Company K. <laughs> so out we go into the night. Well, I want to tell you, we go off to the USO. We're sitting in the USO eating donuts. You know, tuna salad sandwiches and Kool-Aid. That's a big evening in the Osho, Missouri, see? We're sitting there eating the Kool-Aid, you know. And this teletype repair man is still with us, see? We are not going to let this guy out of our sight. We're sitting around there eating the Kool-Aid and stuff. When in comes a guy who's a first sergeant from one of the infantry regiments in the camp. He says, hey... Did you hear about the guys from the Signal Corps that cleaned up the Marines? He says, they was from Company K over there in the camp. We said, we are from Company K. Well, that is the way legends are born. I mean, from that day on, anytime anybody from Company K came into the USO, there was a respectful silence. You know? Well, let me tell you, though, one night, that, 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 that patch on that kid's suit, I saw an incident which, which 3 o'clock in the morning, once every, about, I'd say about every six months, I mean, how many of you have the same thing, you know, about every six months you're lying in your sack, you wake up, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. And for some reason or other, you've been dreaming a dream that recurs. You look up, and you see that, that fire hydrant on the ceiling. And you see that poodle stopping by it. 
You wonder why you dream that dream over and over again. Do you identify with the hydrant? Or is it the poodle you're identifying with? You know? You keep wondering. Well, every couple of months, I wake up and I see this scene. I will describe it to you. Now, all of you have seen scenes in the movies. You know, you saw the Dirty Dozen. The Army isn't like this. This is the fictional version of the Army. In fact, I have never seen anything in any movie that comes anywhere near what the Army or any of the services really are like. The real thing. And I'll tell you an actual scene. I'm in a casual company. Now, this casual company was so desperate that guys, nobody talked to anybody else. The guys used to walk around in the mess lines waiting for somebody to steal their Wheaties. Oh, yeah, they stole your shoes. At night, you would hear guys sneaking in who have been AWOL for six months. And the morale was so low that it was, it was not even measurable. I mean, it sounded like the police calls at two in the morning. It was dark. And I'm sleeping one night. The only time you got any rest from this, oh, I'll tell you one thing that happened to me in the casual company. One morning, they call roll. I'm standing there. Got the tin hat. Been in the Army two years. The whole business. Canteen. Your little medical kit. You ever seen that little medical kit, by the way, they carry in the Army? It's a little tiny kit like that. Once in a while, we'd open it and look at it. It's got a little Band-Aid in it. We always used to wonder what would happen if somebody got his head shot off, you know? Put the little Band-Aid on, you know? It's got this little kit, you know? And we're all standing there one morning, and, and there, ain't, there isn't a single friend in this company. Nobody said a word to anybody. And the first sergeant is calling out, he's calling out the roll. And he's going, right up, read it, right up, read it up, right 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 up, up. And the company is going, yo, 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 yeah, yeah, oops, oops, and And everybody, you know, everybody has his own distinctive, it was like your brand, your distinctive way of calling out that you're here in a roll call. I mean, I'll never forget, we're all going, yo, oh, e, ah. Oh, mm, he, ah, oh, oh, he, ah, oh. And one guy goes, here. <laughs> the first sergeant looks up. Who's the smart guy? <laughs> Who's putting me out here? And it's always dark. The roll is being called at 3.15 a.m. It's always raining. We're standing up to our knees in mud. And off in the distance, you can see the little yellow light bulb in the mess hall where they're frying up the fat pork for us. Yeah, the fat pork, the black coffee, and the SOS every morning. It's raining. We've been in, like everybody in this company's been in nine years. And he's up there calling the roll. Hey, ho, ho, hey, ho. He's all right. Eddie's. The following men's. The following men's will report to the Consolidated Mess Hall for Consolidated Mess Duty for 24 hours commencing at 1,200. 
That is one, two, oh, oh. All right. And right there, I'm sick. 24 hours of KP. Now, there were 200 guys in this company. They were only going to call 12. And the way my life had been breaking, six of them guys had to be named Shepard. Oh, yeah, sometimes it's just downhill. You just keep sliding, you know, and you can't grab anything. So he says, the following men's will report. Gasser, Herbert G., 36908469, TPFC. Are you here, Gasser? Yo. I said, oh, that's one down. Eleven to go. I'm holding my breath. You can hear the whole company holding their breath. Shepard, J.P., oh. Gasser and Shepard, twin, twin symbols of defeat. Destiny had been knocking us over for two years. One time I made T5, that is a corporal. I was a T5 for seven minutes. Once Gasser had made corporal. Two days, he was corporal. And now we're standing in this company. After all these years, we didn't, you know, we didn't know what further obscenity could be heaped on us. And he reads the rest of the names. It's all right, you 12 men's. We'll fall out to the left of the company. Fall out, who? We stand. It is 3.15 a.m., and off in the distance, the fires of democracy and freedom are flickering low. Company K is battling its way through that great jungle called the Army. I'm standing there. All right, you men. Corporal Gillis will march you out, and you will receive your assignments at the consolidated mess hall, and you will be reassigned to further duty 24 hours from this reveille. Any questions? <laughs> what question can you ask? I mean, you could say something like, what hath God wrought? You can make a statement of philosophy. Like each man striving to create within the tiny cosmos of his existence a modicum of thingness. Schopenhauer. I don't think Kowalski would have dug it. He said, All right, march him out, Gillis. And away we go. I was about to see that after two years in the army, I had thought that I had seen the worst it could dish out. But if you think you got it bad, man, there is always one step below. And don't you forget it. And so Gasser's walking ahead of me, you know, in the darkness, and he's going, oh, well, me. Using the only word that Gasser ever used. I mean, we're marching in the darkness towards another one of those kicking the you-know-whats. We're marching. We see that. Now, if you don't know what a consolidated mess hall is, I'll have to give you a little information. 
A consolidated mess hall is like, well, if you can imagine an airline, if you can imagine an airplane hangar, it's made out of old, let's say old used bricks, and it's the biggest H and H, the biggest horn and hard art you ever saw, multiplied by one thousand, and the only thing that it serves is slop. <laughs> Yeah, now, now what is a consolidated mess hall? A consolidated mess hall serves 24 hours a day. That there's always 5,000 guys being shipped in from Fort Ord. They have not eaten in three days. It is 2 in the morning, they march them into this place. There are 6,000 guys being shipped out to Sicily. They have been eating K rations for six months. They march them through here. And they got their mess kits. 24 hours a day. Well, that means that there are 24 hours of KP. There are dishes, I can't tell you. I saw at one time a pile of dishes bigger than Staten Island. And there were two tiny figures in front of it. Yeah. Then there is another hell called pots and pans. Oh, oh! every time I go into the H&H or in Bickford, you know, and I order oatmeal, I do it and I cackle. Because I know that there is some benighted soul in the back there who's cleaning a big pot. And on the bottom of it, the oatmeal has burned. And he can't get it out. And there's a guy saying, get that clean, man, or it's your you-know-what. Well, pots and pans... They take two guys and they put them in this cell. And they pile garbage cans to the ceiling. Now they've been cooking SOS in these garbage cans. It has petrified in it since the Boer War. They give them two GI brushes, two, two bars of GI soap, and they tell them they want them cleaned in four minutes. That's pots and pans. Well, now, I'd been through that, see? I was ready to take that. I had been through the grease trap. Now, I'll tell you what the grease trap is like. It's like the East River at Low Tide Square. Yeah, that's the grease trap. But I did not realize that there was an even worse obscenity that was to be heaped on me. Me and Gasser are marching along. Up ahead of us are all these unknown guys. We arrive at the consolidated mess hall. There it is. 17,000 tables. And there are 9,000 damned souls sitting there shoveling in the jello. <laughs> Whenever I think of hell, I think of a lot of guys eating melted raisin jello. I mean, with their eyes glazed with no sleep. Once in a while, a guy goes, ugh. And they go back to eating, you know. And they drink this purple Kool-Aid. That's the way it is in the real army. Well, the 12 of us get in there, and instantly the cook grabs us. He says, all right, you guys, line up over here. Come on, in you go. He's okay, you guys are the KPs, right? Right. All right, I'm going to give you guys a break. 
Whenever I hear that, my liver curls up. Every break I've ever gotten in the Army has been a break to my ankle. He said, we're going to give you a break. He says, you four guys on the end. Me at Gasser. Why we made that mistake? We've been in the Army almost three years, and we allowed ourselves to get on the end. No good GI who knows his stuff is ever on the end of a line. You're always in the middle of a line, shifting, moving back and forth. Your eyes go back and forth so they can't see you, you know? He's you four guys. He says, follow the corporal into the next room. He'll give you your job. And the four of us go into the next room. Oh, my God, no. There is a gigantic floor, 100 feet across, spread over with newspapers. And on the middle of that newspapers are 400 dead chickens. He says, all right, you guys, clean them. <laughs> Have you ever cleaned 400 chickens? You'd be surprised what they got in them. Oh, and on that note, out there in the darkness, there are GIs on KP. Give them a hand. Let's hear it. Oh, you poor fool. This is WORN.